Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Morning, please have a seat. It is Christmas season, and among the many things that that means, it means Christmas movie season. And among Christmas movie plot lines, there is a certain plot line that Hollywood returns to over and over again. It it seems that Hollywood has discovered the magic formula for creating an entertaining Hollywood holiday production. And the, the, the plot line is Christmas needs saving. Christmas needs saving. Who's going to save Christmas? And so there's this, this plot line that runs through, through so many of the movies that, that we love about the, the need for someone to save Christmas. Now, it might be, you know, saving uh, Christmas for a particular, like, individual or uh, for a particular family, or it might mean that, like, the whole world needs to be saved, right? So uh, think about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with his nose shining, cuts through the fog and saves Christmas, Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, right? Christmas needs to be saved from the Burger Meister Meister Burger. Um, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Santa falls off the roof, disappears. Tim Allen, uh, as as Scott Calvin, must put on the suit and and deliver the toys, saving Christmas. Uh, How about an unorthodox one? Um, White Christmas right? Four friends band together to put on a Christmas show to save uh, a friend's, you know, rural Vermont inn in White Christmas. Or how about While You Were Sleeping? I think it's a Christmas movie, right? Sandra Bullock plays uh, Lucy who saves Peter Gallagher when he, when he falls onto the train rail and he saves Peter Gallagher, but also saves Peter Gallagher's family's Christmas. And along the way, she finds love and romance, Right? How about another love story? Die Hard, (laughs) right? John McClane saves his wife, saves the whole Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza from, you know, uh, this gang of international thieves, right? Kevin McAllister saves his home from two burglars, 
right? How about the, 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 the Griswold family Christmas, which needed to be saved when, when, when the, the mean boss replaces the Christmas bonus with, with a Jelly of the Month Club membership, and Cousin Eddie saves Christmas by kidnapping his boss until he has a change of heart. I mean, think about it. Christmas needs saving. Now, that's not to mention every single Hallmark film that's ever been made. <laughs> Christmas needs to be saved. Um, what if uh, Hollywood uh, took over Luke 1? What, what would happen uh, to, to Luke chapter 1 if Hollywood took it and made it into um, a, a Hollywood holiday movie using that sort of same plot? Uh, can you imagine there would probably be a lot more animals talking? There would probably be a lot more singing involved, right? There, there would be a little bit more backstory to Mary, probably an orphan, right? And she's growing up and she's learning who she is, discovering things about herself and her own strength, you know? Right? There, uh, there, there would this be this, this young girl who's, who's finding out who she is and, 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 and what she can do and what she can be about. And, and, and there would be like this, this really interesting misunderstanding that takes place. And there's some laughter. And then maybe there's a scene where Mary's crawling through an air conditioning vent. And she's saying something, you know, heroic. And she's going to, you know, hop down on the bad guys. And in the end, there's this, this girl who's become a strong woman. And, and, and she is is this, this hero who saves Christmas. And, and then at the very end, there is this, this lonely rich guy with this gigantic ring who goes back to the big city as she marries the poor carpenter. <laughs> right? Like that's, if, if Hollywood got a hold, now it would be a very entertaining story, but it would also be a very human-centric story. Wouldn't it? It'd be a human-centric story. When we look at Luke 1, we see a God-centric story. In fact, when we look at these characters, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary, when we look at them, we actually see them performing very little action. It seems that God is doing all the work. What am I? Am I doing something wrong? I hear sounds back there. It's just the mice. So, but what we see in Luke 1 is, is that it's just this, this God-centric story and, 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 then, and, and so we're going to dive into it a little bit this morning. We are uh, in this series called Fear Not, and we're looking at passages or places in Luke chapter 1 and 2 where, um, where the, this angelic beings are saying to these human characters in the story, either fear not or don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, uh, and, and if I were to entitle this message, it would be uh, Fear Not, Nothing is Impossible with God. Or, or, or fear not, you're not responsible for saving Christmas. Something, one of those two. I can't, can't decide on which. You pick. But, but fear not, because God is at work doing what he's going uh, to do. And I think that's, that's uh, something that we do too often, is, is we come to the biblical text, and, and we ask the question, what is the text asking me to do? What, what is God telling me I need to do? What, what hoops do I need to jump through? What actions is God calling uh, out of me? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to use my strength and power to control or to save or to engage? Or what, like, what, what am I supposed to do? When, when in reality, uh, God is calling us to his word to ask the question, 
what has God done that I need to believe in? Like, who is he as he's revealed himself to me? What has he done that changes who I am? How do I live in response to his actions? Because he's the one that has ultimately acted, and he calls me to simply believe in what he's done, to embrace what he's done. But he's done it. He's done it. And so when we look at this story, Luke 1, along with the rest of Scripture, really says this, this over and over again, I'm doing a thing. Will you believe in what I'm doing for you? So um, I want to uh, highlight a, a resource for you. Um, if you are studying the book of Luke, we're going to be in the book of Luke for, for um, uh, well, the, the Christmas season, but also going into the, to the new year. And so uh, there is this, uh, this resource. It's called um, Luke 1 through 12 for you. It's part of a, a series of commentaries called God's Word for You. It is a really easy resource. If you've never studied the Bible before at all, this is a great one for you to pick up. Um, if you teach the Bible, it still has valuable stuff for you. And so uh, you can... Uh, uh, click on that QR code and, uh, and, and that'll take you to some place that you never heard of to order it. Okay. Let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you. Thank you. The work um, has already been done. Uh, you've already accomplished it. And, uh, and so I, I pray that um, all of us this morning, including myself, can rest in your completed work. Uh, that this would simply be a response, a loving response, a magnifying response of who you are. Uh, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who, um, who hasn't accepted what you've done for them already. They haven't believed it, maybe they haven't heard it. Uh, I pray that this morning that would change. Pray that you would break in and bring new life. I pray this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so if you'll join me in Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and statues of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So if you were here with us last week, or if you won't, sort of catch you up to speed, we, we looked at the first four verses of, of Luke chapter one, and this, this thing which uh, Luke tells us is we can have confidence, we can have certainty that what Luke writes to us or tells us about is True, And we can know that for three reasons. The first is we have a biblical faith. The things that we're going to see unfold in Luke were actually prophesied to come true hundreds of years before. The Bible itself verifies its truth. If, if the Bible said this thing is going to one day happen and it never happens, then you could question it. But if the Bible says, here are 48 things that the Messiah must accomplish in, in his lifetime, and those things come true hundreds of years after they're told, that's amazing. Like, the Bible verifies itself. We have a biblical faith. We also have a relational, or I'm sorry, a, a historical faith. So uh, Luke here, he, he talks about uh, Herod, king of Judea. He also talks about a certain division of the priesthood 
that Zechariah is a part of. To uh, Luke's original readers, these were things that they could go and verify. We have a historical faith. This really happened, and there's outside evidence that can point to that. But most importantly, we have a relational faith. We don't have a belief in a God who is distant, far away, removed from us, who starts creation going like a spinning top and is just waiting around to watch and see what happens. We don't have a God who is hiding from us. We don't have a God who is, who is trying to shield or camouflage himself from us. We have a God who has given us his word. He desires to communicate who he is. He wants us to know what he's done. God wants you and I to find him. You have a relational God. And so what he reveals to us, we can trust. And so here we're introduced to this, this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and Luke might describe Zechariah and Elizabeth as lovers of God. If you'll remember, um, Luke addresses this book to Theophilus. And that may have been an actual person named Theophilus, but his name means lover of God. It may be that Luke is addressing this to the church. Maybe he's addressing this to you. Are you a lover of God? Maybe this is for you. Are you a lover of God? Um, I, I think that, uh, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were lovers of God. It says uh, in the text that they were righteous and that they were blameless. They were desiring to obey God. All right? So here we're introduced to this, this couple, and we, we see some things right away that remind us of other stories. They're not able to have children. And, and there are actually several times in the Old Testament where you encounter women who were called barren and unable to have children. Uh, the, the mother of Samson, uh, Hannah, Rachel, these are women who, who were not able to have children, but God intervenes and gives life. All right? And here's the first point. This is the, this is the big point. Okay? If you walk out of here today with remembering nothing of what I said, please remember this. God is the one who creates life. Life only comes from God. Right? All of life only comes from God. Okay? Wrap your mind around that. So here God has intervened into the, the, the stories of these women and have given life where there was no life before. Right? But we're also reminded of another story of a, an elderly couple who couldn't have children, and that's Abraham and Sarah. We go back to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, here is this man. He is the, the son of an idol maker. They're living in, in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. It's like near Babylon or what would become Babylon. Like it's a pagan culture. Um, and God calls this man and his family to a, to a place that he was going to give to them. And, and Abraham knows, he knows nothing of God, really. But he calls him and Abraham follows. He goes. Um, and, and this promise is made to him, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteous. So, so um, Zechariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us of a story that takes place 1,800 years before they were born in the beginning of God's redemptive plan with this guy named Abraham and Sarah. And he promises them that they're going to, to, to be the patriarchs of a great nation of people that number as, as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham's saying, well, great. Can we start with just one? I don't have the one yet. And God promises them. And it says that, that, that Abraham believed God and counted him as, as righteous. And I want to point out something to you about Abraham and Sarah. They didn't have a biblical faith. They didn't have a Bible, right? This is before, you know, Scripture is written as far as having, you know, uh, uh, God's Word communicated and written down for them to read in their head. Like, they didn't have that. They didn't have much of a historical faith as far as a long history that was probably written down that they could look to and see that, that this, this, this God, that, that this one true God is, is actually real and has intervened in history. They didn't have much of a historical faith. And when it comes to this relational faith, I mean, God just spoke and Abraham just went he didn't have much to go on, and yet he's going on what little he has. It says in verse 7, He said to them, him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the era of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? So here's what this, this amazing thing happens. God gives Abraham some instruction. He says, takes the, these animals and divide them in half and lay them across from each other like a path. And, and, then, uh, and then we'll see what happens next. But what he's doing is he's, he's calling uh, Moses to make a covenant with him. Now, a covenant was something that was used often in those days, but it's generally made between a vassal and somebody in position of authority or power somebody beneath whoever was in charge. They would make a promise to uh, that king, whoever was in charge, by sacrificing these animals, splitting them apart, walking down the path and saying, may it happen to me what's happened to these animals if I don't fulfill my vow. If I don't do what I said I'm gonna do, then may, may this happen to me, right? This, this is what God instructs Abraham to do, but Abraham's not walking down the path. Look at this, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. These are visual representations communicated to Abraham, so he has a picture of what God is like, all right? Um, but uh, it says, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. God is the one making the promise. God is the one who is promising Abraham that this will happen. So, Abraham and uh, uh, Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons. The oldest ends up serving the youngest. The youngest has 12 sons, right? God breathes new life, and here comes Isaac, and new life, and here comes Esau and Jacob, and, and new life comes into the story, and these 12 sons, and from these 12 sons, a whole nation is birthed in captivity and slavery. And 400 years later, God sends a man named Moses to deliver them and bring them to the promised land. God is fulfilling his promise. A people more numerous than you can count. Given this land, God is doing what he said he would do, even though Abraham didn't even see the fulfillment of the promise. He didn't see that, but keep that in mind, all right? So fast forward back 1,800 years to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And here is, is Zechariah and 
God is showing up and God is speaking. He, he is, he's a priest. We know that um, there were so many priests apparently functioning at the time that not everybody got to serve in the temple. Um, his, his name was sort of uh, cast by lot like he was sort of picked up randomly. Not random, God is divine or sovereign. But, but anyway, uh, he, he gets to be the, 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 the one to go into the temple. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This will never happen for him again. He goes into the Holy of Holies and there he is offering incense. It is meant to symbolize the prayers of the people going up to God, and this is where he encounters this angel. So look at me at verses 11 and 13 back in Luke chapter 1. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. All right, so... The divine is invading the mundane. The supernatural is, is, is breaking into the natural, and Zechariah is experiencing something that nobody has experienced for 400 years. God speaking to him. This is an amazing moment. He went into the Holy of Holies expecting to hear silence because that's what God has been feeding them for 400 years, just silence. And the, the, the angel appears to him and says, like, look, this is what's going to happen. The, these are the things that you need to do for your son and keep him away from these things. But, but he is going to turn the hearts of the father back to their children. He's going to be like Elijah preparing the way. And here's what's amazing about this. All right, we, we, we've seen Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament. Look at Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, chapter four, the last chapter in the Old Testament, verses five and six, the last words of the Old Testament. And, and what it is, is it, is it is saying that someday, someone like Elijah is gonna come, someday, and this person is gonna turn the hearts of, the, of their fathers back to their children, and the children back to their father. It's, this person is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Someday, this is going to happen. And, and Malachi, we don't know much about him except for the fact that his name just means messenger. And the Old Testament ends with a messenger saying, one day, this is going to happen. And Luke 1 picks up, and it's like the angel, this other messenger sent from God, picks up the story right where he left off 400 years later. And Zechariah gets to be the first one to hear from God in all of that time. And a promise is being made. Now, the angel says that he heard uh, Zechariah's prayer. Now, uh, we don't know what Zechariah prayed exactly because it's not written here. And some people have guessed, well, it's probably that he was praying for a son. He's probably praying for a child. I don't think so. I think uh, after you reach a certain age and your wife reaches a certain age, you, you don't start praying for children, right? I, I don't think that that's what he was praying for. I think he stopped praying that a long time ago. I think that because of he was a righteous man, as we're told before, I think he went in there to offer the prayers for the people. I think he was praying for the nation. I think he was praying for the nation of Israel. And God hears his prayers, and what God essentially says is, I've heard you, and I'm going to answer your prayers by giving you a son. And this isn't exactly good news for Zechariah. Look at the next verse, 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And we need to understand what exactly Zechariah is saying here. He's saying... Can you do that? 
He's really asking the question, does God have the ability to do this? Can is the key thing that is being asked by him. Now, I want us to understand something. There's Abraham on one side of the covenant, and God is telling him uh, he doesn't have a biblical faith, he doesn't have a historical faith, he has a, uh, just this little relational faith that he's building with him, but he doesn't have, he has hardly any proof about God, and yet he's, he's being told to do something or participate in something, and he does it. He doesn't even see the fulfillment of the promise, and yet here Zechariah is 1,800 years later, and he's seen at least three women who have been given children, who were barren, uh, Samson's mom, uh, Hannah, Rachel, and he knows of Abraham and Sarah who had a child in old age, so God's proven that he could do it then. Not, uh, and, and on top of that, God promised that there would be a whole nation that would come from them that would number like the stars and they would be given this land. Zechariah is living in a time and place where this promise has been fulfilled and he's asking the question, God, can you do this? Can you really do this? It's kind of faithless, Right? See, he stands in an opposition of, of, of Abraham. Abraham had nothing to go on. He has 1,800 years of redemptive history to go on. And he doesn't believe. Now, we talked about unbelief a little bit last week. There's some of us who we lead with our minds, right? And our hearts follow. So um, we, we lead with our minds and we need, to, we need to see the facts. We need to see the evidence. Uh, we need to, to, to see the substance. We want to verify things. And if it checks out, then our heart follows and we can believe it, right? Now, this is not Zachariah. Zachariah has facts. Zachariah has 1,800 years of God doing what he said he was going to do. He's not leading with his brain. He's leading with his heart. This isn't a question of can I believe this? This is a question of do I want to believe this? I want to believe this. I mean, think about it. The thing that you've always wanted is now going to happen at the most inopportune time of your life. On the one hand, you're praying, God, I want you to save my nation. Don't save my nation through me. Don't, don't, don't breathe new life into these people through, through me. Do it another way. And it's kind of faithless, and he gets called out, and, and the angel says, all right, you want a sign? Here's a sign. I'm going to close your mouth. You won't be able to speak until all of these things come into in, 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 in being and happening. You won't be able to, to speak. Verse 19, it says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. This is good news. That's not what Zechariah is hearing. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God has never lied. God has never not completed or done what he said he was going to do. You have 1,800 years of this to back, uh, of evidence to back that up. So wait more, nine more months. I want to ask you, and we take sort of a pause here. Are you a lover of God? Are you a lover of God? Do you want God's kingdom to come? Do you want God's kingdom to come? Do, do you want God to, to breathe new life into the world in which we live in? And are you willing to turn your life upside down so that that might happen? We'll come back to that. So skip down to verses 26 through 29. Let's look at the second appearance of Gabriel. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So uh, Zechariah, he's on one side. He is a priest. Uh, he's an important guy. He gets to minister in the temple. Uh, this is a special job. Uh, no, you know, hardly any priests get to do this. Like here, here's Zechariah, and he's, he was chosen for this purpose because, man, he's, he's a cool guy and knows lots of cool stuff. Here's Mary. Uh, Mary is a teenage girl. Um, she's not married. She lives in a, a tiny little village in nowhere, Galilee. Like, she literally is nobody from nowhere. There is nothing special about her. You and I would encounter her, and we would not find anything significant about her. But God does. The angel says to her, God is, you found favor in God's sight. Now, favor, we're going to come to this in, in a second, it means Grace. And so here's, here's humble Mary. She's like, who am I that a messenger of God would come and talk to me and call me favored one of God? Zechariah, on the other hand, has, has everything that you would probably want, right? But here's humble Mary who has really nothing to offer. And the angel said to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Favor is this Greek word charis. Charis. It means grace. Grace. God is, is going to give her a gift, but this gift is for all the world. God is going to, to, to give her a life within her. She's going to be the door for the Messiah to come and give life to the rest of the world. First, I want to talk about Romans 4, 3 for a moment. Remember we said that that Abraham looked up at the stars and he believed what God said and, and God counted the, to that to him as righteousness. Romans 4.3 says this, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as, as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, here's humble Mary, and she's believing what is being told to her. She's believing this. And like Abraham, who believed what God said, righteousness is being imparted, not because of works, not because of hoops that are being jumped through, not because you're stronger or better or more moral than anybody else. Righteousness comes by belief in what God has already done for you. God has done everything for you. And so I would say, good news. You can't save yourself. Good news. Nothing is impossible for God. But here's Mary, and she's believing what God has said. You know, it has always been the case that righteousness comes not by what we do. You cannot make yourself righteous before God. You cannot undo the sin that you've done. You cannot unbreak what is broken in you. Only Jesus can do that. And he has. So the angel answers Mary's question. The angel answered her. Well, go back to this. Verse 34, it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Um, Zachariah's question was, Can you do this? 
Mary's question is, how will you do this? Do you see the difference? She doesn't doubt that God can. She just wants to know how. It says uh, 35 through 38 of Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. People look at the virgin birth and they think it's reason to disqualify Christianity. Right? It's impossible that a virgin could give birth. No, life is impossible. All of life is impossible apart from God. Life doesn't just happen. Life isn't random. Life doesn't generate itself. All of life is impossible apart from God. And then some people would, would take the story of Mary and they would say, well, they'd take a page out of like the Greek mythology playbook and say, well, the, the Holy Spirit had intercourse with Mary and that's why this happened. That's not what the Bible says, by the way. Instead, the Bible points us back to Genesis 1, through, uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, Okay. The angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit, or the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Where life began, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Life is impossible, except for God. And just as God spoke the universe into being, just as by the power of God was at work at the foundation of the world, that same power is doing something not that much different in Mary. Life is impossible apart from God. You see, if we'll understand that, that life comes from God, that life can only come from God, do you, do you understand what kind of difference that would make in how we treat one another? Did, would, would we see each other as more rare and more precious? Like, when you look into the eyes of another human being, that person's not random. That person just didn't appear. That person just didn't, poof, arrive or, or happen through natural circumstances. Like, that person is here because God made them. Can you imagine how we would treat each other differently if we saw each other that way? God is the author of life. Only God can make life. She accepts what has been taught to her, told her. She believes it. She will go along with it. I love how Mary responds following this. It says she makes great haste and she travels to see her cousin. She goes to Elizabeth. Isn't that beautiful? Like, Elizabeth had Zachariah, but he's not saying much. And But then, but then there's Joseph, and he's not really on the, the scene yet, right? But, but here are these two women together, and they have so much in common. They're walking something through, through something very, very similar, and they're able to lean on one another, and they're able to look at each other's eyes with understanding, and they're able to share each other's joy and participate. Like, no one else in the world understands what's going on for them. And yet God in his grace provides this relationship between these two women. It's a beautiful thing. And then the section closes out with what we call the Magnificat. It's, it's a Latin word. It means to magnify. 
It's a song that Mary sings, and I, and I want to read it to you now, and I just want to, I want you to do, to do something for me. I want you to, to close your eyes. Don't fall asleep, but I want you to just close your eyes, and as I read it to you, I want you to ask the question, who's doing the action? Who's doing the work? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Who's doing the work? Oh, Mary, she's magnifying, she's rejoicing. People are fearing. But all of that is in response to what God has done. This is a response to what God has done. What are you fearing this morning? Are you, are you looking at your future and you're asking the same question as Zechariah? God, can you? Or maybe you're young and you're, you're, you're finishing up school and you're looking towards the future and you're, you're asking questions about who it is that you're gonna marry or, 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 or how it is that you're gonna spend your career or your life. You're looking at, you know, uh, houses and family and, and, and building up a retirement account and raising kids and, and you're looking at it and you're knowing that, 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 that life is real and life is hard and there's ex- unexpected things that might happen along the way, but what are you worried about? What are, what's driving your fear in relationship to all of these things? Maybe you're in a different stage of life and you're looking at, 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 at how, you know, the kids are getting ready to leave home and what am I gonna do when there's an empty nest and, and what am I gonna do about retirement? Am I ready for that? What am I gonna do with my time? Do I have enough money? How is my health? Like from, from, from now until the end of your life, there's this future out there that awaits for you and you're asking the question, God, can you? God, can you save? And if that's where you're at this morning, then, then look back. Look back at redemptive history. Look at at what God has demonstrated about who he is. Look at what God has said about himself and what he's actually done. He's proven himself that you can trust him. He's proven himself that you can rely on his strength and not your own. Look back. And maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, God, will you? Will you save me? And you're looking at your sin. And you're seeing what it is that you've already done and your failures and what you've done to hurt other people and you're looking at, at this, this, this amount of sin that you bear in your life and you're, and you're saying, God, will you save me? I don't think you can. And the reality is, is you think that your sin is greater than God's graciousness. You think that you're bigger than God and you're not. He can, he will. He already has. He already has. In our house church, we were talking about this reality last, uh, last Thursday night about that we have, been, we have been saved, the past tense of our salvation, that, that what Jesus did for us at the cross, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might know the righteousness of God, 
that he goes to the cross and he lived this perfect sinless life in order to make a sacrifice for us. He takes on our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's accomplished, that's done. We've been forgiven. We have been saved. And yet we are being saved as he stands before the Father right now interceding on our behalf. He's he's saved us from the, 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 the presence of sin. He's saving us from the practice of sin, but he's also saving us I'm sorry, he saved us from the, 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 he's going to save us for the presence of sin, from the presence of sin. There's a future salvation that, that, that's yet to be revealed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Mary and you're thinking, how? How will you save? Um, I, I pose this question to our house church and that is, um, do you ever fear that your worst failures are still ahead of you? That's what I fear. To be honest with you, that's, that's what I struggle with in terms of fear. My worst failures are still ahead of me because I see the sin that still exists in me. I see the desires of my heart. I see this war of my flesh against the spirit. I see what exists in here. And I have to hold it back. I, have to, I, I believe this lie that I can suppress it, that I can use my strength, that I can, I can hold it down, and I can keep this monster on the chain. But what happens if I let it off? Will it destroy my relationships, destroy my ministry, destroy everything? God, how? How can you save me? If, if you're in that position this morning, to, then preach to your heart as I preach to my own. The words of this angel to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Do you realize that the same power that was there in creation hovering over the waters, the same power that, that led Jesus and sustained him in the wilderness, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that allowed Jesus entry into this world as a human being, that the same power of the Holy Spirit lives in you. And he lives in me. This is the power of God to save. How? By the power of the Spirit. I want to close by addressing one more fear with you. What if you're not afraid that God can't? You're not afraid that he won't? You're not afraid that, uh, that his ability or how? What if you're afraid that he will? What if you're afraid he will? Look at Zechariah, and, and he's praying. I want you to save my people. Save my people. Okay, I heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. Whoa. I'm an old man. I don't want to change diapers. I don't want to, I don't want to have nights of, of staying awake. I got a friend. Um, he found out that uh, his wife was pregnant, and um, he, uh, like he, he had his youngest right now, they did the math, his youngest right now will go into college the day that their, their newborn will go into kindergarten. This was unintended. This was unplanned. And God in his grace brings new life into that. And they're, they're, they're happy. But, but talk about a change of circumstances. Right? When God breathes new life into something, it disturbs it. It shakes it up. It messes it up. Do you understand that? So on the one hand, if you're saying, God, I want you to change my neighborhood. 
God, I want you to invade my neighborhood with, with your power and with your love. I want you to breathe new life in, in, into these people. Are you aware that God may say, awesome, here you go. And God may do something through you that would bring about a disturbance in your life and just wreck it. If you would say, God, I want you to breathe new life into my workplace. I want you to invade where I work and my coworkers. I want them to know you. God would say, yes, great, here you go. And he might breathe a new thing through you that might wreck everything. Derail your career. Reprioritize everything. Do you really want God to breathe new life into the world around you? Do you really want him in our city? Do you really want him in our culture? Do you really want him in this church? Do you want it so bad that you're willing to give up your story for the sake of his story? Some of you might be afraid that God will save. Melissa and I uh, asked the question uh, about fostering again. And we've been down uh, this road, and uh, we know how difficult it is. And um, Melissa especially looks uh, around at our, our little family and asks the question, are we complete? Is everybody here? I'll be honest, uh, that scares me to death. It does, because I know how disruptive it is. And no human life is like another one. The life that it brings will have its own disruptive nuances. The question is, is can we as a family, are we willing to surrender the story that we want in order to partake of the story that God has? I don't have an answer on that yet in, in terms of that issue. But where are you at? Is God big enough? that you can trust him with this. I want to remind you, the call isn't for you to be braver. It's not for you to be stronger. It's not a call for you to be better. It's a call for you to look at what has been done for you and accept that. Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, thank you again. Holy Spirit, thank you for the power with which you give us to live. Power with which you give to us to turn away from sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for changing or trading your life to take our sin and give us your righteousness. Lord, I pray for rest today. And I pray for the people as they walk out those doors they would leave their burdens and fears behind. By the power of your spirit, we would walk out of here resting in the work that has been done. Take the burden off of trying to earn our own salvation. We don't have to save Christmas or anything else because nothing is impossible for you. In Jesus' name, amen.